service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about figure skater Tanya Harding are insane. In 1994, she found herself at the center of one of the biggest sports scandals of all time, when her need to get a leg up led to whacking the leg of one of her competitors. In the years prior, Tanya Harding was one of the most technically accomplished talents in the United States Figure Skating Association. She was the second woman in history to complete the triple axel, the most difficult jump in figure skating, but she didn't fit into the accepted mold of what a figure skater should be. She wasn't refined enough or refined at all. She was rough around the edges and she refused to submit to the Disney princess image that her industry tried to project. And her career, once so promising, morphed into a tangled web of diabolical plots, arrests for assault and violations of parole. So despite some of the more infamous events she is known for, Tanya Harding was part of some of the greatest sports moments of all time. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Detroit Hot Dog Bop MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights from TNT to a broadcast of Shaquille O'Neal banking 28 points in the LA Lakers 109-96 win over the Boston Celtics. And why would I play you that specific slice of Shaq Fu cheese could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on February 24th, 2000. And that was the day that Tanya Harding was arrested and jailed for assault. Six years after, a much more newsworthy assault had thrust her into the national spotlight. On this episode, brutal attacks, triple axles, rough edges, shack food, cheese, free will, and Tanya Harding. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season 2, Sportsland. They said she was trash. They said her outfits were cheap. They said her hair was too frizzy. They said her taste in music was crude. They said that she was a gearhead, a redneck. And they said her talent wasn't supposed to matter. And so it was faded, like every other aspect of a predetermined existence that she was and she would always be trash in the minds of everyone else, especially in the minds of those who mattered the most, the judges, the fans, her competitors. There was no free will in this life. By her estimation, anyway, there was the illusion of free will, which kept most people from jumping off the edge of a tall building most days. But reality is much different. There was no use trying to make a difference. It was what it was, and she was who she was, trash. And like trash, she found herself discarded late one evening, tossed from the edge of the road, her pickup truck stuck in a ditch in Battleground, Washington. April 20th. 2002, 1.30 a.m. They could call her whatever they wanted, but Tanya Harding wasn't about to be discarded. She would do what she always did, pull herself up by her proverbial bootstraps and extract herself from the horrible situation she was in. 
she knew she hadn't been hurt in the accident, even if her 1977 Dodge was hissing like a snake. And she also knew it was going to take a tow to get her out of the ditch. When the local police arrived, Tanya explained that the power steering had gone out and she lost control of the vehicle. And the breathalyzer told a different story. She blew 0.16, two times the legal limit in Washington. She blamed one too many triple axles, the signature cocktail created in her honor at the South Pacific Cafe, a Polynesian-themed restaurant which was located right there in Battleground, just 30 miles northeast of her hometown, Portland, Oregon. The concoction of vodka, Bacardi, watermelon liqueur, orange juice, and pineapple juice was delicious but could lead to trouble. That evening's trouble, however, ran deeper than a few mixed drinks. Tanya was currently on probation. She only had one month left. Alcohol consumption was a violation of that probation. And this all stemmed from her previous arrest two years earlier in 2000 when she beat the piss out of her then-boyfriend, Darren Silver. This was in Camus, Washington, closer to the Oregon border, and the two had just returned home and were arguing in the barn behind their house. Tanya had a head full of booze, prescription painkillers, and Zoloft, and Darren had a face full of Tanya's fists. The cops said it looked like Darren had gone through three rounds with Mike Tyson. Darren, his face bruised and covered in blood, agreed. And the hubcap Tanya threw may have drawn first blood, but her uppercuts did the most damage. And Tanya swore she only punched Darren in self-defense after he had attacked her and knocked her to the ground. Darren denied it. He said Tanya hit him first and it was unprovoked. You're a felon, Darren said, and I have nothing to hide. Fourth degree domestic violence assault. And that was that. And that was her role, predetermined. Once a felon, always a felon. She couldn't even be a damsel in distress. She's too fucking tough to ever be seen as a damsel, let alone one in distress in need of being saved. And Tanya did three nights in jail and was sentenced to two years probation. Darren told the judge he forgave her, but it didn't make any difference. It never made any difference. Trying to make a difference was an exercise in futility. She knew that now. So how did she get here now? In battleground, in a ditch, two times over the legal limit, in violation of her parole? Did she even have to ask herself these questions? She got here because she was always here, right here, here, on this very path. The story had been written before it had unfolded. The prophecy was self-fulfilling. There wasn't a thing she or anyone else could do about it. Nine years earlier, she learned that lesson the hard way. In 1993, Tanya Harding was the epitome of what a figure skater should be. She was 23 years old. Her command on the ice was masterful. She could jump like few others could, and she won the prestigious Skate America and then the U.S. Figure Skating Championships. She was the second woman in the world after Japan's Midori Ito to successfully complete the triple axel. The most difficult jump in figure skating, that is, not the intoxicating and delicious mixed drink in Washington State. Tanya had been that good for years. When she was just 16 years old, she beat two-time Olympic champion Katerina Witt in the short program at the NHK Invitational in Japan. But despite her natural talent, she didn't fit in with the genteel image and ladylike aesthetic of the U.S. Figure Skating Association. She was too rough around the edges. Her outfits were handmade from 100% polyester. She skated to Tone Loke's Wild Thing, not Fru Fru Mozart. She was more adept at fixing cars than she was playing dress-up like all those Disney princess wannabes. And her leisurely pursuits off the ice included more traditionally masculine hobbies like hunting, fishing, shooting pool, and drag racing. And now one of Tanya's contemporaries, like 
let's say Nancy Kerrigan. In actuality, Nancy's socioeconomic background really wasn't all that different from Tanya's. She too was from a working class family. And Nancy's father worked as many as three jobs at a time to support her skating career from a young age. He even drove the Zamboni at a local rink in exchange for ice time. But Nancy played the game. She chose more elegant music. She gave the judges what they wanted, Snow White on ice. But there was a perception that Tanya was lower class, that she was trashier, whether it was because she came from a dysfunctional, unsupportive family, or that she married young, or that she simply lived a life that was perceived as antithetical to the life of a female figure skater. Thus, as has been surmised by Tanya and others close to her, her contemporary skaters may have turned their noses up at her and judges may have made her work harder to achieve scores that were way below the scores that she actually deserved. There was also bad luck. Bad luck just seemed to follow her around everywhere. In 1993 at Skate America in Dallas, one of her blades came loose during the free skate. Later that same year at the US Figure Skating Championships in Phoenix, the back of her dress came undone when she was only 25 seconds into her routine. Then in November of that same year, Tanya withdrew from the Northwest Regional Championships in her hometown of Portland, Oregon, after an anonymous call was made to the rink. The voice on the other end of the phone said that he was going to kill Tanya Harding. Despite her obvious talents and her best efforts, Tanya failed to qualify for the 1993 World Championship team which meant that the chances of her qualifying for the 1994 Olympic team were dwindling. To Tanya Harding, things were not going as planned and it seemed to her that the universe was conspiring against her. And sometimes, when you believe that the universe is conspiring against you, you act irrationally. You act out of desperation or maybe you feel entitled to take control of the situation in whatever way you can. And perhaps then your judgment becomes clouded because if you believe your entire life is predetermined, then there is absolutely nothing, no matter how heroic or how villainous, that you can do to change it. But nevertheless, Tanya Harding tried. She tried because fate be damned, she deserved a spot on that team and she deserved a shot at the Olympics, no matter what the cost. Jeff Galuli could be preceded by a reputation, he was preceded by his mustache. By the time he did get himself a rep, it wasn't a good one. He earned that no good rep by the bad things he had done, bad things that had put him in prison. So when he left the Shutter Creek Correctional Institution in Hauser, Oregon in 1995, six months into his two-year sentence, he decided to give himself a new name in hopes of abandoning his reputation. He was now Jeff Stone. But the name change did little to change the fact that he was still just Jeff Galuli, the no-rep guy with that Don Mattingly grade stash. And if that stash had been less Don Mattingly and more Dick Dastardly, Jeff would have twirled its long, stringy ends as he helped to hatch a plot so nefarious that it would change lives and perhaps even the entire sporting world. Portland, Oregon, December, 1993. Tanya Harding had just returned from Japan where she'd been dealt a shit hand, like a 2-7 offsuit hand. 
Jeff Galuli knew it was a shit hand before Tanya could even fly back across the Pacific from the NHK trophy competition and tell him all about it. About how, during the technical program, she fucked up the landing on her combination jump. About how she skated beautifully otherwise, beautifully enough to score high, but that damn landing placed her fourth in the competition. And none of the judges were ready to admit that she was as good as she was. Worst of all, placing fourth hurt her chances of securing a spot on the US figure skating team for the Winter Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway. The Olympics were only two months away. It was going to be a struggle. Jeff was intimately familiar with Tanya's struggles. He was often at the center of them. They had married in 1990 when Tanya was just 19. During their tumultuous few years as husband and wife, Tanya filed two restraining orders against Jeff. In one, she wrote, quote, He has assaulted me physically with his open hand and fist. And she filed for divorce twice. The second time was the charm. In December of 93, they had been officially divorced for six months. But despite the turbulence, they had reconciled and continued to live together under the same roof. Now, this is no reputation Jeff Galuli we're talking about. He had quit his day job at the Oregon Liquor Control Commission to focus on Tanya's budding skating career, which meant that he drove her around, supervised the books, and more often than not, waited impatiently for all of Tanya's hard work to pay off. If she found fame and success, then he too would find fame and success by proxy, which is why news of fourth place at the NHK Trophy in Japan was bothering him now. Jeff and Tanya didn't have much in the way of prospects beyond Tanya's success on the ice. And that's when Jeff imagined his mustache growing out a few inches on either side. And then he imagined his forefingers and thumbs twirling the jet black ends. Or more honestly, I imagined him imagining that stuff with his stash because, well, it just makes this whole damn thing a lot more fun. It was a simple plan, really. It may have been Jeff's idea, or it may have been Sean Eckert's. Sean Eckert was an old friend of Jeff's and at 26 years old was living a unique delusion. Sean ran a company in Portland called World Bodyguard Services, which sounds prestigious and impressive until you learn that the company's headquarters were based out of a room on the second floor of Sean's parents' house and that World Bodyguard Services had no clients. Well, okay, that's not true. World Bodyguard Services did have one client, Tanya Harding, who was quick to request Sean's protection immediately following the death threat she had received the one that caused her to withdraw from the Northwest Regionals just a month earlier in November. And like Tanya, Sean knew that recovering from a badly dealt hand was as easy as simply replacing a couple of cards. Sometimes you pull a hidden card from inside your sleeve, sometimes you threw the whole fucking deck away and started over. And so Jeff and Sean wondered, what if they were to kill two birds with one stone? What if something happened to a high-profile figure skater, something worse than a phoned-in death threat, something that would give Tanya the leverage she deserved, while also drumming up all kinds of new business for World Bodyguard Services. It would be a win-win. With a competitor out of the race, there would be no doubt that Tanya would qualify for the Olympic team. And frightened figure skaters would beat down the door to that one room on the second floor of Sean's parents' house in search of the protection of a bodyguard agency. But who would they attack? Which figure skater? That was easy. The one who was as tall as Tanya was short. The one who was as regal as Tanya was regular. The one who represented the prettied up ideals of the US Figure Skating Association and did it all with a blindingly huge smile. The one and only Nancy Kerrigan. Neither Jeff nor Sean wanted to get their hands dirty. They needed someone to carry out the hit while they ran the show behind the scenes. Just like Jeff had been working behind the scenes for Tanya. Sean sought guidance from Derek Smith, 
a friend who had recently moved to Phoenix, Arizona in hopes of starting a paramilitary survival school. And Derek had a nephew in Phoenix, Shane Stant, drifter, bodybuilder, and an ex-con who is currently unemployed and passing the time befriending stray dogs in the desert. It's true. You can look it up. The quartet of conspirators met to work out the details. The goal was to disable Nancy Kerrigan so that she wouldn't be able to attend the Detroit National Championships in January, thus giving Tanya plenty of room to secure an Olympic spot. Ideas flew around the room. Could we just kill her? What would that look like? Sniper up in the nosebleeds at the ice rink? Not too complicated, and escaping from the rink without getting nabbed would be near impossible. Well, okay, what about her Achilles tendon? That's an easy walk-by job. You hide the knife inside the cuff of your coat sleeve, and then you walk by or let the blade sneak out, bend your knees, and give the quick slice to the back of the leg. Pull the knife back into your sleeve and walk faster. Now, then there's blood, and then what do you do when the blood splatters all over your hand and your knife and your pants? This needs to be done neatly. There can't be any mess. We don't want to have anything to clean up afterwards. So this quartet of geniuses decided that there would be no guns, no blood. Shane would whack Nancy Kerrigan in the leg, the right leg, the leg she landed her jumps on, and whack her hard enough that hopefully something would break, and it would take her out of the competitive skating events for the foreseeable future, thus giving Tanya a better shot at making the team and a reason for Sean's bodyguard business to sign up frightened figure skaters as new clients. Jeff and Sean haggled over costs like amateurs because that's what they were, fucking amateurs. And then Shane Stan embarked on a wild goose chase of comically epic proportions trying to track down Nancy at the Tony Kent Arena in Cape Cod where she practiced. Again, amateurs. And within days, the plot seemed to fade away. Jeff figured he'd been scammed out of a few grand and Tanya didn't know why she even tried to fight what was inevitable. And then, when no one was expecting it, the plot breathed new life. Detroit, January 6, 1994, 2.35 p.m. Shane Stan was running. He didn't know where he was running to. He was afraid to look behind him. His head hurt like hell, and he knew it was bleeding. He put it through the plexiglass door at the Cobo Arena while making his getaway. He hadn't expected the double doors to be chained together. Now, outside in the cold, Shane lost track of where the car was, the car that Derek Smith was sitting in behind the wheel, idling with sweaty palms and anxious nerves. Shane had already got rid of the 21-inch retractable ASP tactical baton. He bought it at a place called Spy Headquarters, which sounded like a name from one of Sean Eckert's Trapper Keeper binders for like 58 bucks and change. It was fairly light and flew from his hand when he tossed it underneath a parked car where it got stuck in the snow. He'd got one clean hit with the baton on Nancy Kerrigan's leg, just above her right knee. He'd been nervous as shit, shaking as he made his way through the hallway in the back of the arena where Nancy was standing, talking to a reporter outside her dressing room. Now all he heard were Nancy's shrieks of pain. She screamed over and over again, and she kept screaming as he fought with the chain double doors at the end of the hall. She screamed so much, he just couldn't handle it anymore. And that's when he decided to exit head first. And now he was outside, running running just to run, running in circles, running with his head continuing to bleed, running hopefully to where the screams couldn't find him. He didn't know how long he'd been running or how far away from Kobo Arena he was when Derek finally pulled up, flung open the passenger side door and told Shane to get in. And Tanya Harding would later deny having any prior knowledge of the planned attack and that she only found out about it in the aftermath. Regardless of what she knew or how she may have helped, Tanya couldn't believe it had actually happened. 
that the four amateurs had actually gone through with it. She was dumbfounded while she watched Nancy Kerrigan howl in pain on national television. And then Tanya let her guard down. She pondered a life of free will, a life where she wasn't relegated to the predetermined role of trash, a life where she was on top, where she was the face of figure skating, a life where she caught a goddamn break every once in a while. She wondered if her luck, at long last, was finally changing. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Nagano, Japan, February 1998. The gold was heavier than she had expected. As the medal was draped ceremoniously around her neck, she felt the weight of it pull on her, not just to the medal itself, but what it represented. Victory, acceptance, respect, revenge. Tanya Harding stood up straight on the tri-level podium, bouquet of roses in one arm, smile radiating from cheek to cheek. She let the rapture of the crowd's applause wash over her. At 27 years and three months old, she was the oldest figure skater to ever win a gold medal at the Olympic Games. And not only had Tanya made history, she had delivered a breathtaking performance. No falls, no trips, no wardrobe malfunctions, no backtalk from the peanut gallery. She'd blown the minds of the 7,000 in attendance at the White Ring Stadium when she landed the quadruple axle. No one had ever completed such a complicated jump in the history of figure skating competition. And the invitation to the White House came soon after. U.S. President Bob Dole was eager to meet with Tanya and the rest of the U.S. figure skating team at the Rose Garden the following month. President Dole had offered her his individual congratulations over the phone right after the win. And she, in turn, offered the president a belated congratulations of her own. His election win over incumbent President Bill Clinton had been a landslide. Around 11.30 p.m. on the evening of November 5, 1996, Clinton made the phone call to concede. His challenger, Bob Dole, 73 years old, was about to become the second oldest president of the United States after Ronald Reagan. Dole's election surprised the pollsters and the networks. Honestly, it even surprised Dole a little. Sean Eckert may have been the most surprised out of all, however, when he got his own personal call from the White House shortly after President Dole was sworn in. The U.S. government wanted him to serve his country as a counterterrorism expert. Shaw had become a legend in the figure skating protection business, and business was good. And the attack on Nancy Kerrigan that he covertly helped orchestrate back in 93 had drudged up so much new business that World Bodyguard Services outgrew his parents' second floor. It had even outgrown Portland, Oregon, and now operated satellite offices in New York, Chicago, Paris, and Beijing. Figure skaters the world over were terrified that they were the next target of an attack. And Sean, even though he knew those fears were bunk, told each and every one of them that they were absolutely right. And to think, all of this from a little tap on the leg of Nancy Kerrigan, just above her knee. Shane Stant's baton shattered every bone and Nancy never skated again. No one ever suspected Sean or Shane or Derek or Jeff. Tanya was able to seize the opportunity of Nancy's absence and with a little momentum, she vaulted herself to success into the Olympic team for Lillehammer in 94. Now she had seized the gold, not to mention the world stage at Nagano in 98. Next would be the Sports Illustrated cover story, and then the cover of Vogue, Harper's Bazaar or Cosmopolitan, maybe all three. Anything was possible when he grabbed life by the balls and gave them a twist. Or so went the fantasy. Back in the real world, however, on January 18, 1994, 
Tanya Harding stared at the latest issue of Sports Illustrated sitting on the kitchen table. Nancy Kerrigan was on the cover. In giant white type below her anguished face was written, Why me? Why now? Why? The FBI agent asked Tanya Harding if she was paying attention. Tanya blinked and offered nothing in return but a blank stare. She kept looking at the Sports Illustrated. After everything, after all that effort and planning and nastiness, Nancy Kerrigan was still a cover girl and Tanya was not. And the agent repeated an earlier question. You said you heard them talking about doing something to someone before the attack on Nancy, but nothing specific? Tanya tried to think. She didn't know what she should or shouldn't say. She really just wanted to rip that goddamn picture up of Nancy Kerrigan. She wanted the world to be fair. She struggled to keep her cool. Well, they were saying things like, maybe we should take someone out so we can be sure she gets on the team. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I don't need your help. I can skate. And the FBI agent showed no sign of emotion as they gave her that look. She knew that look. The look that said, yeah, okay. A look of disbelief. Not necessarily disbelief that she was lying about her involvement in the planning of the crime, but disbelief that she could skate, that she could be an Olympian, that she ever thought she could be something else and what she had been preordained to be. Nothing that she did and nothing that she had others do for her would make a bit of difference. There was no advantage. There was no good luck. There was just the same old narrative, the same old plot that had been set in stone eons ago. But the plot was thickening. First, the FBI had a full confession from Sean Eckert. They also had a cassette tape. On that cassette tape was audio of the original meeting between Sean, Shane, Derek, and Jeff from back in December when they planned the attack on Nancy. Sean had hidden a small tape recorder under a paper towel on the table. It was insurance in case Jeff decided to do something stupid like refuse to pay him. But that wasn't all. They also had a piece of paper that appeared to have Tanya's handwriting all over it. Scribbled on it was information about the Tony Kent Arena where Nancy practiced in Cape Cod, along with the time she was scheduled to be there. Information that would have been collected to provide to Shane Stan when he went on his initial boondoggle to locate and disable Nancy Kerrigan. And where had that incriminating piece of paper been found? A few hundred yards from the Willamette River in a dumpster behind the Dockside Saloon, a restaurant in Northwest Portland. That paper was once part of a bigger plot a master plan, a change that was going to come. Good luck at last, but now, now, it was just trash. Tanya Harding wondered if she should just take up boxing. They didn't nitpick you in boxing the way they nitpicked you in figure skating. You didn't have to make a landing gracefully or maintain your poise or, Jesus Christ, smile through your pain. In boxing, you just had to hit the other person. And if you hit that motherfucker hard enough, they went down. And if they went down, you won. Simple as that. She needed simple. Figure skating was not simple. She found other work as a welder, a painter, a hardware sales clerk at Sears, but not a figure skater. Because despite the fact that she was one of the best, that technically she could skate circles around all other girls and Lutz and Axel till the cows came home, that wasn't her destiny. No, she was the one fated to get the cold stares and the holier-than-thou smirks, 
She got the unfair scores and the wardrobe malfunctions and the untied laces and whatever random piece of bad luck floated into the rink on any given competition day. She was the one to become involved in a very dirty conspiracy to attack and wound a fellow skater, someone she may have once considered a friend and certainly a teammate. And she was the one who would pay for it all. And she did pay for it. March, 1994. Tanya Harding didn't get jail time like the rest of them did. Her ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, and Sean Eckert did time for racketeering and Shane Stant and Derek Smith fessed up to conspiracy to commit second-degree assault. Tanya Harding, on the other hand, was guilty of conspiracy to hinder prosecution. A plea bargain that got her three years of supervised probation, 500 hours of community service, and a $100,000 fine to the state. She was also ordered to set up a $50,000 fund to benefit the Special Olympics, pay back 10 grand in cost to the prosecution's office, and undergo psychiatric treatment. The prosecution gave her that look. She knew that look, and they didn't believe her. They thought she was dirtier than that. She just looked like the kind of person who would hold a grudge and plot a hit. And though she didn't have to give up a life of freedom for her life behind bars, Tanya gave up plenty, most significantly. She was forced to give up her membership to the United States Figure Skating Association. Soon after, the association barred her for life. She had pleaded guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution as a Class C felony offense. Her felon status meant that she wouldn't even be able to vote for Bob Dole in the 1996 election. And it wouldn't matter, because Bob Dole was going to lose to Bill Clinton in a landslide with or without Tanya Harding's vote. Just months earlier, before it was discovered that associates of Tanya Harding were behind the brutal attack of Nancy Kerrigan, the Winter Olympics soldiered on at Lillehammer, Norway in February of 1994. Clad in a sparkling white costume designed by Vera Wang, Nancy Kerrigan skated like a dream. She moved with grace, and when she jumped, she seemed to float on air. When she landed, her blades met the ice with confidence, and at the end of her nearly five-minute singles routine, she struck a pose that was so triumphant and so powerful that the crowd erupted in applause. Flowers were tossed from every part of the stands while Nancy waved with a face that was somewhere between heartfelt appreciation and total disbelief. It had only been seven weeks since the attack at Cobo Arena in Detroit. Against all odds, Nancy had shaken off the blunt force of Shane Stant's 21-inch retractable baton. She had walked it off, skated it off, and now, in Lilyhammer, she remained the pretty poster girl for figure skating. Only this time, she deserved empathy from the world and she repaid it with boundless inspiration. For her effort, she was rewarded with the silver medal. Tanya Harding came in eighth. What was even the point? Why was she even trying? She knew none of it mattered. Didn't matter how much you practiced or how much you prayed or how hard you hit someone else with a retractable baton right above the fucking knee because you weren't writing your own story. You didn't define who or what you were. Someone or something else did. Was it God? Was it the universe? Was it some paleolithic cave person who drew out the arc of your life on a wall tens of thousands, maybe millions of years ago? Didn't matter. Whatever it was, it didn't want Tanya Harding to win. Whatever it was, said when the game was on and when the game was over. I'm Jake Brennan. And this is Badlands.
Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.